Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, I want to ask you, I want, to, I want you to think about something, um, just briefly, before we get into Mark chapter 3, where we will be looking this morning. If Jesus were walking the earth today, in your proximity, how would you respond? What, what would you do? What would your response be to his message and his ministry? You see, this morning, as we begin chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see three responses of different people to Jesus' ministry. Uh, We're going to see that he was hated, that he was adored, and that he was followed. And I want you to think about that. Which one would I be? Where would I fit in? What would my response be? If you have a Bible, can you grab that Bible? There should be Bibles in the seats all around you. uh, And open it up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. You're going to turn to almost the back, actually, of that book, and you're going to be about four-fifths of the way through the Bible, and uh, it's going to be on page probably 838 if you're using the same Bible I am, which most of the Bibles in the seats are. Uh, Mark chapter 3 this morning. I want to take a moment and pray before we look at three responses. That's what I've titled my message today, three responses. Father, I ask that today, um, Lord, you would help us uh, to understand and to receive from your word today Uh, Lord, how we can best respond to you. Lord, I ask that you would even speak to us and show us perhaps. We may think I would never be like that person, but maybe deep down in some ways we are in our response. And I pray, Jesus, this morning that you would be lifted up in this place, that you would be exalted. Lord, we invite you right now by your Holy Spirit to begin to speak to every heart that is in this room. Ultimately, Jesus, we want to be people that follow you. And so bless our time in your word today. I thank you for the power of it. Uh, May you transform us by it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to jump right in this morning. The first response that we will see is hated. Hated is the first response. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him. Now, who exactly is the they that watched Jesus in this this first verse here? Well, we're going to find out in verse 6. Any guesses on who it actually is? The Pharisees. Good guess. The kind of, remember we mentioned last week, there's some of the the primary antagonists of Jesus in his ministry. And, And we're told here that they're watching Jesus, which is generally a good thing, is it not? I think we, you know, it's a good trait if all of us were people that watched Jesus, kept our eyes on Jesus. The problem is is that they're watching Jesus for the wrong reasons. Uh, They want some dirt on Jesus is really why they're watching him. They've 
they've, they've got a plan. Uh, some commentators actually think that they perhaps planted the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. Think, think about how, why are they watching Jesus? Because they know, they know some specific things about him. The first thing is this. They know that, that the attention of Jesus, as soon as he comes into that room, would always be drawn to the person with the greatest need. They know that. They, that's why there's this man here, and they're watching and waiting specifically because there's a man with a withered hand, and they know that his heart is going to be drawn right away to that need of the man. It's a beautiful characteristic and attribute of Christ that is still alive and well today, of course, that the greatest needs are always what his heart goes towards, even in our own lives or, or what is around us. His heart is drawn to the needy. I wonder, you know, is it the same thing that can perhaps be said of us? That when you enter a room, where do your eyes go? Where is the first place that your eyes go? Do you look for the person that is in the greatest need? Or do you look for that person that you're most comfortable with? Do you maybe avoid the need instead? Another thing that I find amazing, that they, as they watch Jesus, this is kind of crazy, but they, they watch him because why? They knew that he had the power to heal this man. You think about that. You could actually say that they had great faith in Jesus, did they not? They really did. They believed that he could actually heal this man, and so they were keeping their eyes on him. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you would think that they would be able to put two and two together. If, if Jesus is out there healing people, it's not like there was thousands of rabbis that were healing people, you know, by the dozens every day. Yet they know this as a characteristic of Christ, that he has the power to heal. But they still would not connect the dots that, that he could be more than just some good rabbi that has some sort of power to, to the fact that he actually could be the Messiah that they've been so desperately waiting for. You know, it's, um, it's crazy because their religious traditions, the, the bias that they held onto blinded them in so many ways from God's revelation, which, which is kind of scary, which in the same way can happen to us at times, can't it? That our own biases and, and perhaps even religious traditions can blind us to what God wants to do. And so they're watching and they're hoping, which is kind of a funny way to put it, but they're hoping that Jesus is going to heal this man for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus, of course, knows what they're up to. We've, we've already seen him able to read minds and hearts to know exactly what people are thinking. And so what's he going to do? Look at verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. The Greek is literally arise in the, into the midst. In other words, stand where everybody can see you. Now, Jesus knows what they're up to. He knows that they're, they're watching him so that they can somehow figure a way to come against him. They want to use this against him. Yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say to the man, hey, here's my business card. You know, maybe give me a call a little bit later and we can sort out that hand of yours. Or he doesn't tell him, you know, you know what, why don't you meet me at Peter's house later uh, or behind the synagogue after this thing's finished and, and I can fix up that hand of yours. What does he do? He makes it as visible and public as possible, brings him out in front of everybody, because really, they think that they've put Jesus on the spot, but we're going to see that it's actually the other way around. Look at verse 4. And he said to them, to these Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. You see, they're actually the ones that are trapped now, aren't they? Right? He presents this question to them and and he knows because in their rules, in what's known as the Talmud, which was the Jewish uh, interpretation of the law, how to live the law, they had a specific rule, all kinds, of, I mentioned this last Sunday, do you remember how many chapters there were just on Sabbath um, uh, uh, obligations or how to observe the Sabbath properly? Do you remember how many chapters they had made up? 
from that one verse, 26 chapters, right? 26 chapters on this is how you can observe the Sabbath safely without breaking it. And as part of those chapters, one of the things they mentioned on the Sabbath was that if there was, only if there was impending death, could you do something on the Sabbath to help somebody. So in other words, if I'm bleeding to death, they'd say this, they'd say, you can take a tourniquet and you can tie it around the arm nice and tight so that it would stop the blood. But you can't do anything more than that. No stitches, no polysporin, nothing to start the healing process of that arm. Can you believe that? They'd say that. You can only prevent death. That's all you can do. Anything else would have to wait until after the Sabbath because they considered that to be work, which we all look, we listen to and we go, what, that's crazy. But Jesus knew that they had done this and so he asks this question. And the other reality is that obviously this man's hand, is it a matter of life or death? Is it a matter of life or death? No, of course not. It's not a matter of life or death. And so they, of course, would say it can wait until after the Sabbath. In their rules and their traditions, they say that can wait. But, but you know, there's a number of things. In a society where, where the, the primary way that a man made their living was through uh, physical labor, needing their hands, this, of course, would be a severe disability. Was there any need for this man to suffer one more moment? But their silence, it spoke loud and clear, didn't it? I mean, the, the answer to Jesus' question was obvious, uh, yet they, they did not want to answer. Was it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? What do you think? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Of course it is. I mean, there is never a wrong time to do the right thing, is there? doesn't matter what day of the week it is. How can there ever be a wrong day to do something good? You know, think of it this way. Does evil ever take a day off? No, of course not. Evil never takes a day, day off, so why should doing good take a day off? In fact, the reality is this, is that to do nothing when you can actually do something is actually more of a violation of the law and the heart of God, right? In fact, James 4.17 tells us that. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, and so the, this is the whole thing we, we kind of touched into this last week about the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And the law of the Sabbath, which so much of the, the Pharisees uh, and the religious leaders' um, traditions revolved around that Jesus would continually break their laws, not God's law, but their laws. Right? We touched on this, that the spirit of the law was that the law was given for what? Was the law presented by God so that you would die? So that you'd be burdened? You guys don't know. It wasn't, in case you're wondering. The law of God was given, in fact, and I mentioned this last Sunday, that, that when they were entering into the land, it's repeated over and over and over again, that they might live long and prosperous lives in the land that God was blessing them with. It was to bring life. The purpose of the law was to bring life. That's the spirit behind the law, is life. And so the letter may say no, but it has to always be uh, understood and read in the context of the spirit that it is given in. And the Sabbath was never intended to be a limitation on doing good for people. We need to understand that. In fact, how did Jesus, if you think about the law and the prophets, how did Jesus sum up the law and the prophets? He said this, he, says, he, said, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. All of it. He said, I can sum it up for you in two commands. And what were those commands? Yeah, that, yeah you nailed it. Yeah, yeah love the Lord. Precisely. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said that is the, the first, the primary command. And he said that the other is, is, is like it. Love your... Oh, that was better, much better. Thank you. 
You're really starting to scare me. Uh, Yeah, he says all of it hangs on this. Loving God with all that you are, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, if that's the, the idea behind the law, then would it be okay to help somebody on the Sabbath, do you think? Of course. Of course. But they don't want to respond, and so Jesus is going to have to respond for them. Look at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So he's so angry. He's so angry, I think, because, because they depict themselves as being the, the, the perfect representations of God. Yet he's so grieved at the same time because they're so lost and they don't actually understand God at all. I mean, there's no empathy for this man. There's no putting themselves in his shoes and for what it must feel like for this other person and how difficult it would be. I mean, if they did have empathy, if they really had the heart of God, they would be in that synagogue and they truly, genuinely would be hoping that Jesus would show up and heal this man. Do you not agree? Not for the wrong reasons that they could somehow plot to to get him, but but that they could genuinely see this man made well. But that's not what they're they're thinking. And, And I think Jesus is so grieved because because these are the religious leaders of Israel that are supposed to represent God to the people. And that makes him so sad. He speaks about their hardness of heart and it grieves him. We can also translate that as callous, a hardness, a callous on the heart. And you know how that, that, that didn't just, just develop overnight. They didn't wake up one day and be like, I've all of a sudden got a hard heart towards God. It's not, it's the same for anybody. Or it takes a time of continual resistance to the offer that God has given you. That's how a hardness and a callous develops. You know that, continual resistance over and over and over. Our daughter, Rebecca, is learning to play uh, the guitar right now in Vancouver. And, and she's told us multiple times how badly it hurts her fingers, right? And if, how many of you have ever learned the guitar, right? You start playing the guitar. You know that over time, eventually, with continual resistance to the pain, what happens? You develop a callus. Yeah. And in fact, I don't, I don't lead worship or play acoustic guitar much anymore. And now, when I play guitar, it's like, oh, I can make it through three songs and my fingers are dead. I don't have the continual resistance and the buildup and the calluses that I once had. And that's the same way that it happens in our lives towards God. A continual resistance toward him. And the, the truth is that the Pharisees could have turned to Jesus. They could have had an open heart in some way. But over and over, they resisted him. And in turn, they actually resisted the kingdom of God, the very thing that they were living and hoping for in their day. In fact, they're going to see it on display here in just a moment. Look at verse 5 as it continues. Jesus, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. Which is kind of funny, don't you think? Don't you think that the man had tried to stretch out his hand before? Right? I wonder what he's thinking at this moment. Well, I can't. Can't you see it's withered? But here's the thing, when God calls us to do the impossible, he'll always supply the ability and the power to do it. God never gives a command in his word that he won't then give us the ability to obey it. If, and this is true about all commands. If you struggle obeying some of God's commands, you know what you need to do? You need to take it up with the commander. Honestly, you need to be like, God, I can't do this. And you'll be like, Great. I want to give you the strength then to live that out. I want to give you the power and the ability to do that. He will help. See, he just calls us to obey. Stretch out your hand. That's all, that's, that's all he had to do. He didn't have to have the ability to, to do any more than listen and obey. See, our job is simply to obey, and God's job is to empower us then to do what he calls us to do. Look at what verse 5 then tells us that man did. He stretched it out, 
and his hand was restored. I mean, isn't that amazing? I think we just read these and we kind of go, oh, cool, another miracle. Can you imagine this, this withered hand that no longer functions and it stretches out and it heals, made like new again? I think it would be so exciting to witness that firsthand. Can you imagine the man, how excited he must have been? Can you imagine even the, the congregation at the synagogue on that day? How excited they must have been. And, and even the disciples, whoa, another miracle. This is amazing. I don't know, I don't know. Maybe you've seen so many miracles, you just get kind of tired of them. I don't think they got tired of them. Everyone's excited. But not everyone is excited. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Other translations say on how to kill him. How many of you think that's a bit of a strange reaction? It's like, he just healed somebody, we better kill him. This is crazy. This is, but, but here's the reality. They pretend to be so concerned about what deeds please God on the Sabbath. Yet what do they do? They spend the Sabbath planning a murder. How backwards is that? And notice who the Pharisees planned the murder with. What does it say in the text? They went out and planned it with who? The Herodians. So you've got to understand something here. The Pharisees, they were a very strict, legalistic uh, group of nationalistic Jews. And they hated everything Rome. They hated anything to do with Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, were Jews as well, but they were sympathizers with Rome. In fact, they supported Herod and his rule at that time in Jerusalem. They were basically corrupt Jewish politicians is what they were. And so you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. Do you think they got along really well? They hated each other. They totally hated each other. You guys, this is, this is kind of like the KKK and the Black Panthers getting together. Yeah, some of you laugh because you really, like, seriously. Or, or a bunch of pro-lifers and pro-choicers <laughs> coming together, uniting together. This is crazy, but you know what? Their hatred for each other was not as great as their hatred for Jesus. They hated Jesus more. And so, in a sense, Jesus brought them together. <laughs> That's what you could say, right? Their, their hatred for Jesus united them. And I think as we look at this first response of hatred towards Christ, I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say, oh, that's where I fall into that category. My response would be one of hating Jesus. Of course not. But if I'm honest here, as I spent time studying this past week and just in prayer and just listening to the Lord, you know what I realized is that I can actually be like the religious leaders at times and resist God's work in my life. You know, Sometimes I can develop a hardness of heart toward Jesus too, just like those Pharisees did, when I continually resist what he wants to do and how he maybe wants to work in me or change me. And I actually felt really convicted this past week. You know, there's times, if I'm honest, that his kingdom and his ways interrupt my kingdom and my plans and my ways. And, and you know what? It, it, sometimes it's like, well, it's not really how I think things should go. And you know what? I honestly, if I'm honest with you, there are times when I find myself opposed to Christ, kind of like the Pharisees. And I wouldn't say that I want Jesus dead, but I would say this if I'm honest. There's times that maybe I don't want to die. Do you know what I'm saying? You can die, Jesus, but I, but, mm, I don't know. And I just realized, you know, as I really took time and honestly searched this out, that I actually sometimes can be like a Pharisee in continually resisting what God wants to do in my life. Well, maybe your response isn't the hated one. Maybe it's more like the second one we see. And that's adored. There were those that adored Jesus. There were some that hated, some that adored. Look at verse 7. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, often in Scripture, uh, when we see the term the sea, it actually is a picture or a representation of the world. If you ever read the book of Revelation, it speaks about the sea. It's talking about the whole world, essentially, is what it's saying. And here, this is kind of the idea that Mark is actually even giving us. The idea here is he's mentioning all these different regions. He's saying, in a sense, that the whole world now is coming to Jesus. What once was maybe hundreds and only Jews is now thousands or tens of thousands and mixed with Jews and Gentiles even. The areas that are mentioned, they're not predominantly Jewish anymore, but they actually include Gentiles as well. Traveling by foot. You've got to imagine how far some of these are traveling, as much as 160 kilometers, these areas that he mentions, to get to Jesus. I have a little map for you here. That's the same as walking from Victoria to Qualicum Beach. How many think that's a little bit of a trek? Okay, or maybe a little, how about Duncan? We can go from Duncan. Can you see the next slide here? shows it going from Duncan to Comox. Anybody ever walked from Duncan to Comox? No, no. I, I mean, how many of you struggled to get to church on time today? Right, and you had how many kilometers you had to go? With a car, right? I mean, this is crazy. This is incredible. These people that are coming from up to 160 kilometers away. For those Americans in the congregation today, about 100 miles. So we have some, uh, good to have you with us. Oh, there's that, yes, I forgot there's other Americans too, so. Um, this is a long travel, a long trek. But they totally adored Jesus. The problem is, is that it, it's seemingly for the wrong reasons. You know, commentators actually point out that the crowds seem to be less interested in Jesus and actually more in what Jesus can do for them. Mark described it this way in that last part of the verse that we read. He said, when they heard all that he was doing, they came. In fact, we're going to see that they're so eager to be healed, to get something from Jesus, that verse 9 tells us, he told the disciples, have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. I mean, crowd control was honestly an, an actual legitimate concern. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. A commentator Walker Evans points out, he says this, the crowds grew disorderly enough that Jesus kept a getaway boat ready. Literally translated, the Greek here is a small boat should be constantly attending him. Maintaining order must have been difficult. The regions listed indicate this crowd would not have had one common language. In addition, you've seen how unruly crowds can get at sports arenas or doorbuster sales. You know, there's actually, you know what's Friday? Anyone know what this Friday is? There you go. Yes, you're well-trained consumer people. It's Black Friday this coming Friday. You've probably seen it. If you've been on Amazon or anywhere else, you'll see all these new Black Friday deals going and all kinds of things happening. Do you know there's actually a website, no word of a lie, Black Friday deaths. How many people have died on Black Friday from sales. Like going to like, like, it's like, that's my TV. No, I got it first. And then they like pull out a gun and shoot the person. <laughs> Crazy stuff like that. There's been 17 deaths. <laughs> that was, a, and that, they stopped after, it's not 2022, or, and obviously we haven't had 2023 Black Friday. It went up to 2021. And there has been 17 deaths, 125 injuries. That's crazy, just from Black Friday. Can you imagine? People go crazy over that kind of stuff. He goes on to say this. Imagine the passion there'd be if people believed all their health problems would end if they could touch one individual. 
Do you, do you get kind of the, the picture of what's going on here? The Greek indicates that people literally fell on Jesus. The Greek word there. They're, they're just, they're clamoring on him. They're actually falling upon him. No wonder he needed a getaway boat for safety, right? They, they, and the, the thing we're seeing here is that they weren't interested necessarily in his teaching and his preaching. In fact, many, as that commentator pointed out, probably didn't even understand what he was saying. They didn't speak the same language. They just wanted a healing and they would do what was ever necessary to get that healing. In fact, it would probably be worse than a Black Friday shop, would it not? Probably. I mean, people, you think, people will do anything for health and for healing. It would be a total security nightmare. Think about it. All these unwell, sick people everywhere. And then to top it off, the text is going to tell us that there was also a bunch of crazy demon-possessed people coming after him, swarming Jesus as well. Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Which we might read that and go, well, that's kind of strange. I mean, why wouldn't he, you know, they're, they're, it's free advertising, right? But here's the thing. I heard it's described this way before. It's kind of like if like Playboy magazine wanted to run a positive article on the churches of the couch and valley. What do you think the pastors of the churches would do? We'd be like, not a chance. Do not publish that. We don't want to have any sort of connection. We don't want to have any sort of, you know, identification with that source. And I think you would probably agree, it's, it's bad public relations to have demons advertising for you. Plus, the, the other reality is this, is that Christ's time had not yet come. Think about that. Do you know that in Jesus' ministry, there was only one time that he presented them to the crowds as the Messiah, to the triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem on that, that, that uh, donkey, the, the foal of a donkey. That's the only time he presented himself as the Messiah. Up until that point, it was not his time. It was not his time. And you can see here, I think Satan was trying to screw everything up. Because you, you know that if there's tens of thousands of people that are wanting to make somebody king, what would they do? What would they do to Rome? What would they do, right? And so, so it was not the time yet. It was not the time. But here's the thing. These crowds adore Jesus. They totally adore him. But it's only for what they can get. You know, it wouldn't be too long before these same crowds that looked to Jesus for healing and for deliverance would be shouting, crucify, crucify. You know, again, I had to think about this. Are there times that perhaps I respond like this crowd? And, and, and I thought about this, and I thought, you know, yeah, I think there are, because there are times, there's times where I would say, you know what, I love Jesus, I adore him as the savior of my life. For what he can do for me, I adore him for how he can help me out of pickles and problems. But is he the Lord of my life? Yes, Savior, sure, but Lord, does he call the shots? Or is it kind of like I talked about last week, the vending machine God, where it's like we, we go to God for whatever we need, and it's like I need this, 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 and this, and I get it, and then I just kind of turn, and I go my own way and do my own thing. And we treat him a bit like a vending machine God. Do I only adore him or do I serve him? You see, true adoration results in commitment. As we see here, the third response followed. There were those that followed. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You see, the answer to the, the growing demands upon Christ and his ministry at this point was not to isolate. That's what some of us would maybe do, just run away and hide. 
But instead of isolation, what did he do? He began to delegate. He delegated. He delegated to more, to others. You know, to specifically 12 years. D.L. Moody once said this, an old preacher. He said this, I would rather put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. Isn't that the truth? I'd rather put 10 men to work than do the work of 10 men. And that's what Jesus is doing here when he, he appoints these 12. And the main duty of these 12, what was the number one priority? What does the text tell us that their number one priority was? Say it loud if you know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number one priority was to be with him. Number one, he says that, so that they might be with him. That was the, the key thing. Just like an apprentice. What does an apprentice do? An apprentice just hangs out with the master, right? With the expert and learns from them. Uh, Micah, our son, uh, just got a job with Richmond Elevator. I would never at this point ride in an elevator that he just put together. Because he doesn't know a lot about building elevators at this time. So if you go to Mayfair Mall, is there an elevator in Mayfair? No, let's go to a bigger mall. Is there, is there, oh, there's an elevator. Okay, I don't know where. Yeah, well, okay, sure. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just saying it's all one floor, but yeah. So let's say you go to the mall and there's an elevator and it says Micah, you know, built by Micah. At this point, he's only two weeks into his job. Don't ride that elevator. Why? Because he's an apprentice and he's learning. And he's learning right now. He's actually working out of town in Port Alberni with an expert. He's with a master, a master builder that is showing him this is how you build the elevators. I mean, they build like the full on everything. They make full on elevators. And so that's what he's doing. He's learning. He's, he's following along. That's all that an apprentice has to do is just follow and learn from the master. So that was their first priority. Be with Jesus. Be like an apprentice. Learn from him. And then what is the second priority? So I think, Karina, you mentioned it. The second priority was to do what? So to be with him and then send them out to preach and what? And cast out, drive out demons. So basically he's saying, you need to be with me and then you need to do what I do. That, that's what he'd been doing up to this point, preaching and casting out demons. And, and some of your translations might even say to heal as well. That's what Jesus did. That, that was what he just wanted them to do, was come be with me, train, I will train you to do what I do. I mean, think about this. Micah isn't apprenticing right now to be an elevator mechanic to go be a nurse. Right? How many of you would be like, that's the wackiest thing ever? And in the same way, Jesus was just training his people to do what he was doing. That's what he wanted them to do. He, so he just poured into them and then, then we would see eventually they would pour into others and on and on and on. And it just kept multiplying Christ all over the world, doing what he did. And so I want, I want us just to, before we move on from this, to think about two things here. Number one, how are you at just being with Jesus? What does that look like in your life? Do you ever take time to just be with Jesus? And secondly, I'd ask you this. What are you doing does it look like what Jesus did? That's the primary reason he called them and calls us to follow. And I don't know if you are here this morning, you want to be a disciple or not. I don't know if you want to be like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. But the, the reality is this, is that he calls each and every one of us to follow him, to come alongside him, to be with him, and to learn from him. And you might hear that and be like, not me. I could never do that. I'm not qualified for that. I mean, Peter, he's got a theology degree. Sure, he could maybe follow Jesus in that kind of way, but not me. I could never do that. Why would Jesus call someone or want someone like me to be his disciple? Why me? Well, let's see who he chose. Look at verse 16. He appointed the 12. 
Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's a list of superstars, is it not? I mean, how do you read that list and you think, you know what, the only one that I can relate to in that list is Judas. When the opportunity comes, I'm perfect at letting Jesus down, right? Is that, and that's maybe how you feel. Listen, you guys, this was not the A team. This was not the B team. It wasn't even the D team. It wasn't even like the X, Y, Z team. This is like the bottom of the barrel. We need to understand that. You know, you know what else? Sometimes we think we picture them, you know, as being like kind of, you know, these mature, you know, 35-year-old and plus kind of guys. They were likely, very likely, in their early 20s. In fact, some, uh, some very reliable scholars believe that, that John and others may have been 15 or 16 years old. These are young men still figuring things out. And the list, look at this list, the superstars. It starts with Peter. He's the first guy in the list, incredible guy. I mean, just look at his name. How much better does it get, right? So you've got Peter. And Peter's the, he's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? Is he not? He's the guy that's always like, like he's always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know that. In fact, Jesus at one point calls him Satan because of what he says, right? Like, how many of you ever sometimes feel like Peter? Have you ever said, why did I say that? What was I thinking? Okay, then there's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, of course, John wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, those three letters. He also wrote the book of Revelation. I don't think any of us can really relate to that. But you know what? Jesus actually called them here the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Most people think, commentators think, that the reason they had this nickname was because they had a bit of a short fuse, a bit of a temper. They could strike at any moment. You never knew what was going to take place. In fact, there's one time, an example in Scripture, where there's a city that doesn't welcome Jesus, and what do they do? These two guys, James and John, they turn to Jesus and they're like, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy the city? Jesus is like, oh my goodness, these guys are not getting it. Right? Have you ever had a bit of a short fuse or a temper? You've ever lost it? Then there's Andrew. Andrew is Peter's little brother. Basically just lived in the shadow of Peter all the time. How many of you ever feel like you're kind of living in your brother or your sister's shadow? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, like me, I live in my wife's shadow. I'm just simply known as Andrea's husband all the time. That's all that I'm ever called. Then there's Philip and Bartholomew also called Nathaniel. You've probably heard of Nathaniel. He was a total skeptic. When Nathaniel is first told about Jesus, he says, you need to come see Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he respond with? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Totally skeptical. And don't forget about Matthew, the tax collector. We looked at him last week. His name was, of course, Levi, and Jesus changed it to Matthew. He wrote the gospel of Matthew, but, but before he ever got to doing that, what was he? He was basically a ripoff artist. He basically stole people's money as a tax collector for Rome. Then we have Thomas, the doubter. Anybody ever doubted? You have, how many of you have ever had doubts? Next, there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Do you know what these guys did? Does anyone know what they did? No one knows what they did. They're nobodies. We don't actually hear about them again in Scripture. 
How many of you ever feel a little bit like a nobody? And then there's Simon the Zealot. Some of your translations may say Canaanite. Uh, the root word there, actually, it's actually um, Canaanite comes from the word zealot or zealous. And so it's better translated as zealous. Simon, this dude, was a religious extremist. He basically was like a Jewish terrorist that was trying to overthrow the Roman government. Not a word of a lie. They, these guys would do anything. They would kill. They would kill to, to see Rome taken out and Israel raised up. I won't even go into some of your guys' views on the government and how many of you would like to overthrow the government. So, so you all, I know there's many of you that actually align with that one. And of course, we have Judas Iscariot, who the scripture tells us what? Betrayed Jesus. Need I say more about him? This is the most ragtag group of misfits that you could ever come up with. I mean, are these a bunch of heroes? They're a bunch of zeros. They're a bunch of messed up misfits. The only hero here, you know this, the only hero is who? Jesus. Jesus. So how about you? Do you ever say the wrong thing? Do you ever feel like you're living in the shadow of someone bigger or better? Have you ever had a bit of a temper? Have you ever been maybe skeptical or doubted? Maybe you've ripped somebody off at some point. Do you maybe feel like a nobody sometimes? You know what? That's perfect if you do. Do you know what God says? He says, perfect, I can use you. I pick you. Follow me. There's a teacher, Gail Irwin. I love this saying he has. He says, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me. Isn't that the truth? That's how we should honestly all probably feel. You know why God chooses you? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth about why God chose them. Look at this. He said, remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, what does it say next? No one can ever boast in the presence of God. You see, God chooses to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that that way when people look at, other people look at those people, they say, there must be a God. Can't be them. Did you see that? He gets all the glory. No one can ever boast in his presence. As Sandy Adams says, you can never be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. You can never be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. So let me ask you this as we close. What's your excuse for not following Jesus? What's your excuse? And what's your response today? Is your response one of hatred in the form of resistance to his will in your life? Maybe there's a hardness or a callousness that has been developed in your heart toward Jesus. Maybe you're resisting what he wants to do in you. Maybe he's continually been speaking to you convicting you about something and, and, and you just keep pushing away and resisting. Or maybe you just adore him for what he'll do for you, saving your life, blessing you. And, and the savior part, that's, that's far enough. Is he the Lord of your life today? Have you submitted yourself to his lordship in your life? I want to invite you this morning to come and to follow Jesus, to become his disciple, to be, become his apprentice to lay down your plans. For some of you, it means laying them down again. 
Maybe you've taken them back up and he's saying, I want you to lay those down again. You know, I, I want you just to learn again to maybe pray that simple prayer, your kingdom come and your will be done. Connor's gonna come up and, and just lead us again in that song. It's an old song now. We were discovering actually in practice that some people weren't even born that were on the worship team when it was written. <laughs> it's not that old, but Jesus, all for Jesus. And I want us to sing that. It's maybe even a little bit new to some of us here. And, and just with this invitation to once again come before the Lord and say, Jesus, it's all for you. Everything that I'm doing, everything I'm living for, it's all for you. I want to invite you again or for the first time to come to Christ, to, to sing this song as a declaration, to sing this song as a way of declaring to him that, Jesus, I am giving my life for you. It's not just Savior anymore, it's Lord as well. Jesus, be the Savior and the Lord of my life. And so can we just prepare our hearts as Connor begins to lead us in this song again? Jesus, this morning we come before you and we just, we ask that you would reveal deep down in our hearts, Lord, if there's places that we've been resisting you, Lord, and we would never say, I hate Jesus, but, but the way we live our life maybe says something else. Jesus, come, be the Lord. Not just adoring you for what you've done, but Jesus, that you would truly be the one that calls the shots in our lives. Lord, may we simply follow you where you lead, God, we will go. And so, Lord, even now, I pray that you would speak to hearts all across this room or joining us online about, about areas maybe that we've maybe taken back. Maybe we've begun to follow you, but we've then shut doors and say, well, not that area, Jesus. I'll gladly do this, but not that. May you speak to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak in these closing moments in this song, God, that we would declare again to you that it's for you, Jesus. It's all for you, Jesus. You're welcome to sit or stand, whatever you want to do, but just may this be a time where you just allow the Lord to speak to you about what it might be in your life. God, give us soft hearts. Let your Holy Spirit work again in us. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or Find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.